0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. The government's approach to standards and ethics is making headlines. Rules might be being broken, and we're being told to wait for an inquiry to run its course. And Boris Johnson is involved, probably. It's also 2022, isn't it? But it's also what's happening right now. Yes, Rishi Sunak's pledge to lead a government of integrity is under pressure. That didn't take long. But is it his fault or the unfortunate legacy of the Johnson era? We'll explore what's going on and where it might lead. If it wasn't for the latest standards crisis, more people would probably be talking about the NHS crisis, because it hasn't gone away, despite the Prime Minister setting out a series of emergency support measures. But will they work? A new IFG paper is not convinced. We'll be talking to its author. And then to end, we'll take a look at a question that has tripped up plenty of politicians what does a new government minister need to know when they start the job? Well, the IFG has the answer. or lots of them, in fact, as we'll reveal all later. Joining me throughout is IFG Associate Director Tim Durrant, who leads our work on ministers. Hi, Tim.
1: Hi, Hannah. It's great to be here.
0: And I am delighted to be joined by Kat Nealon, who is Political Editor at Tortoise. Hi, Kat. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Hannah. Yes. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, Here we go again. Standards, ethics, the rules, all back in the news. Boris Johnson's involved, the government's independent advisor is too. It's all rather familiar, isn't it? But for Rishi Sunak, this is new and potentially dangerous territory. One row involves Nadim Zahawi, the Conservative Party chairman, and his tax affairs. The other involves Boris Johnson alone and the chairman of the BBC. So, Tim, we're recording at lunchtime on Thursday. Can you give us a quick summary of where we're at?
1: So, I can I can do my best. Um, on the Zahawi case, as you mentioned, Hanno, it's all about his tax uh, return and his tax affairs. This first bubbled up when he was um, Chancellor last year at the tail end of Boris Johnson's government. It's emerged that he has paid a penalty to HMRC uh, because of um, problems in, in his original tax payment. Um, last week, the Prime Minister said that he thought the issue had been addressed in full, but since then, he has asked his independent advisor, Laurie Magnus, who was appointed just before Christmas, to look into it to ascertain whether or not Zahawi has broken any um, aspect of the ministerial code. Uh, and we will wait and find out what that investigation says. And then with Richard Sharp, as you say, he's the chair of the BBC. Uh, he was appointed uh, while Boris Johnson was prime minister. He uh, has been accused of helping to facilitate a loan to Boris Johnson while he was PM. Uh, and the, the question here is, was he sort of supporting the prime minister manage his personal financial affairs while he was um, applying for this obviously very high profile uh, important public role and whether or not there's any sort of wrongdoing through that and that process is now being looked at by the public appointments commissioner William Shawcross. So again another investigation.
0: So Kat which would you say is the more awkward
1: row for Rishi Sunak?
0: Um, Well (laughs) I think I think the Nadim
2: Sahawi one is because he is obviously a current cabinet minister and someone who was appointed by Rishi Sunak um, to be the sort of face of the Conservative Party. He's, he's the Conservative Party chairman. Now, there is a, a good reason for him to be in that role. He is a very polished communicator who, when he was vaccines minister, was regularly rolled out on the morning uh, broadcast round because he hits all the notes perfectly well. Um, but I think the reason why this is not just a, a Johnson era problem that Rishi Sunak can just shrug off is because, as you said in your in your summary, um, these allegations were surfacing last summer. Um, and so we we all knew uh, that there were unanswered questions. You know, there was this uh, report that he was under investigation by the NCA, which he said was a smear. Uh, we knew that there were there was uh, some uh, sort of um, unanswered questions about his taxpayers because HMRC had been looking at them. Um, and and so for Rishi Sunak to have appointed him without getting to the bottom of either of those, there there is sort of questions about his uh, his his political judgment there, which again, those questions existed before Rishi Sunak became prime minister, and it sort of further stokes the fires, of, you know, the doubts that people had about him becoming prime minister in the first place.
0: But Tim, I mean, quite a lot of the, the crucial points here are around what Sunak knew when, aren't mm-hmm. they? Whether he was given certain assurances, what what Zahawi what revealed to him, but what was also told to him by the civil service and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It does raise questions about, as you say, what the PM knew at which point, and and the fact that. Last week he said he thought it had been addressed in full and then since then uh, he's asked for this investigation, You know, suggests that more information has been coming to light. Um, and it does It does sort of, it makes you question who is giving him what information. So Zahawi obviously presumably has talked about some of this with, with the Prime Minister or with um, officials. Uh, and then there's a question about what advice the Civil Service gave the Prime Minister. Did they tell, when, when Sunak wanted to appoint Zahawi when he came into number 10, did they tell him About the situation that had uh, arisen while Johnson was trying to appoint Sunak. Uh, Obviously, HMRC can't discuss individuals' personal tax uh, situations, but the proprietary and ethics team in the Cabinet Office, they have um, part of their role is sort of advising PMs on if there are any potential um, ethical questions around um, appointees so that the Prime Minister can make the ultimate decision as to whether or not to bring them into government.
0: And we just don't know what advice was given. No, we out. don't know what... We've had a lot of insinuations, haven't we, about what might and might not have been revealed, but we just, that's what the inquiry is
1: for. That's part of what the inquiry is for, absolutely.
0: Kat, this is all a bit of a gift for Labour, isn't it?
2: It is. Um, I mean, you know, PMQs yesterday was was a sort of a slightly odd one. Um, with Starmer used the first three of his questions um, to talk about a, a very serious and, and sombre matter about, about a woman that was um, stabbed by, by a man. Um, And, you know, there was a sense that while that is undoubtedly important, that it was maybe the wrong place for that discussion when you have far more sort of overarching questions about his, about Rishi Sunak's leadership. So the expectation was that Starmer would go in on uh, Zahawi. Talk about Richard Sharp. Talk about perhaps even the fixed penalty notice that Rishi Sunak got last week. Talk about um, Dominic Raab. You know, there was a list of of, of obvious stories that um, that that Keir Starmer could have really had some fun with, um, and kind of made it sort of uncomfortable for Rishi Sunak. And instead, he sort of really stuck with this other story, which. Slightly then, when he did eventually segue to Zahawi, um, it it felt like the the sort of momentum wasn't there. And also the tone, it it took a long time to sort of shift from people, quite rightly, listening to the questions and the answers about this very serious and non-political matter um, to something which was more sort of the sort of usual kick about political football, um, meant that you didn't get the kind of wall of noise that you often get in PMQs when there is a big row. Um, I mean, that said, obviously, we've, we've seen yet another set of polls uh, come out yesterday that shows that Labour is still well ahead and particularly ahead in the red wall, um, which will worry um, Rishi Sunak, going into the local elections and, you know, kind of further add to the sense that, you know, he's probably looking over his shoulder a bit, wondering whether, you know, the people that he's invited down to checkers today for his cabinet away day, whether they're going to stab him in the back at some point.
0: Yes. And Tim, the IFG has put forward suggestions, numerous suggestions over some time now about how the rules that govern ministerial standards could be Improved. I'm conscious. One of the things we've said, and one of the things we said to Rishi Sunak, and we said before that to Liz Truss, was you must appoint a ministerial, an advisor on ministerial interests, because when a when something arises, it's really good to be able to say I've got an independent person on hand who can conduct an investigation, and it sort of sets sets that issue aside while the facts are discovered, and then it's for you to make a judgment. But it's actually it's not turned out like that, has it? Because we've now we've got an advisor. He followed our, our advice. Um arguably. Uh, arguably. uh I mean he didn't follow our advice to strengthen the powers of the advisor, but we'll 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 set that aside for now. And he has done exactly what we've said. He's given this investigation you know, he's asked for an investigation and it's being conducted, but the noise has not gone away.
1: No. I think No, you're right, Hannah. I mean the noise hasn't gone away. I think the fact that the advisor is there, he clearly is using that as a way to sort of try and distract uh, or deflect questions. Um, perhaps part of the issue that the PM has is he didn't go to Laurie Magnus immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was uh, two weeks of this bubbling up, really quite quite uh, a lot of attention on it until he said, OK, fine, I will ask. But also from our point of view, as you mentioned, one of the recommendations we made is actually this person should be able to do their own investigation. They shouldn't have to be asked by the prime minister. Had Laurie Magnus... Uh, been given that power when he was appointed before Christmas and then this story kind of got the attention it did early in the new year, perhaps he could have at that point said to the Prime Minister and said to Zahawe, look, I think it's time, I need to look into this. And that would have have given the PM a bit more breathing space, I think, but it's because he's taken a while to deal with this. Um, And just to kind of pull it back to the bigger picture, I was just talking to some colleagues before this, you kind of feel like if this was happening in isolation, it would be a big story, but it wouldn't be the 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 thing that it is now, the fact that this is coming at the end of three years, effectively, of ethical scandal and allegations about misbehaviour of all different types, you know, financial, sexual, um, the parties, everything in inside government and parliament, it just kind of, it, it, it sort of, it adds to this whole sense that there is a bigger problem here. And Sunak, you know, I think to his credit, said he was going to tackle that, you know, when he entered Downing Street, he said, I will lead a government of professionalism, integrity and accountability. Bold words. And you can only obviously, he can only sort of earn that credit by actually doing it. And actually, at the first hurdle he's faced on this stuff, I think he's been found wanting.
0: Kat, do you think there's something in that from a media point of view as well? Because it, it is the fact that the media are, are really fixed, you know, fixed on the on the Zahari and the, the sharp stories when Arguably, there's lots of other, you know, big things going on which they they could have moved on to. Is it because it's it's just relatively easy to fit these individual instances into a broader narrative around standards issues and the Conservative Party that it's that it's not going away?
2: I think there's a story. There's there's nothing easy about this story. Um, several journalists have been plugging away for many months to get something. Um, across the line, you know, obviously um, we've seen Dan Needle, the, the the tax advisor, you know, the legal threats that he's received. Um, you know, this has been where are we? Probably about six or seven months uh, since we know about. I don't know how long Anna Isaac at the Independent was working on it before it originally broke. But it's 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 a long time coming. And you know, I, I think the the reason why journalists are writing about these stories is because. They are many and they are varied and and they paint a picture about the kind of um, crisis that the party is going through. So, you know, if you think, obviously, we had, let's say, a year of stories about Boris Johnson, including but not exclusively about these, the parties, but then and and then Rishi Sunak comes in promising to be the, you know, clean sweep. Um, but then he reappoints a lot of the people that there were questions about, you know. And it's not just that Zahawi is the first herd or as Tim says, you know, but but you, almost instantly, we had rows about Suella Braverman being reappointed as Home Secretary just a few days after she had been sacked for, for leaking government, not official documents, but leaking government documents. We had Gavin Williamson, who fell on his sword ultimately because Rishi Sinak wouldn't make a decision on him either about bullying allegations. We've got Dominic Raab still under investigation. Now, uh, uh, it seems an expanded investigation into the multiple complaints of of bullying allegations about him. Um, And, you know, we had a situation on Saturday morning at the weekend where Dominic Raab was sent out to do the, the, the round. And he was asked, well, let's, you know, can we talk about um, Nadim Zahawi? No, don't want to talk about that. Well, OK, can we talk about the prime minister's fixed penalty notice for for not wearing a, a car seatbelt? Oh, no, don't want to talk about that. Well, can we ask about um, your own bullying allegations? Oh, don't want to talk about that. I mean, what do they think is going to happen with all of these various scandals running concurrently? You send out a minister who is the subject of one of these scandals, then, of course, those questions are going to be asked. It's not going to be, you know, what Policy are you working on? Please tell me, Minister.
0: So, at what point does Rishi Sunak's claim that he's going to wants to lead a government of integrity just become impossible to sustain? Well, I think
2: it was impossible from the outset. So, what we saw with with um, Liz Truss, and you know, I think part of the reason that her government collapsed as quickly as it did only part, is because um, she selected uh, a very, very small loyalist group of of people to become her ministers. And that meant that she had effectively two thirds or three quarters of the party against her and willing her to lose from the outset. So Rishi Sunak sort of watched from that and learnt from that and tried to um, appoint some people who weren't Sunak Loyalists, uh, but a lot of them are compromised. Were compromised at the time, um, and even some of those who are his supporters, like Gavin Williamson, who went out to bat for him and was kind of a really key uh, played a key part in the leadership contest. You know, tainted from from the get go. Um, there is something about. This, this is p- probably part and parcel of what happens when you have people who have been in power for a very long time. Um, but there is also, you know, I think there are wider questions around um, some some things that we have seen almost as a kind of consequence of the, the sort of various uh, snap elections that we've had going back several years um, about some of the candidate selection and, you know, perhaps a, a, a bit of... Um, Blinkered thinking, not willing to sort of you know, a kind of a don't ask, don't tell approach to to some of these um scandals or rows or whatever you want to call them.
0: So possibly lessons there for all parties when thinking about their selections uh, ahead of the next general election.
2: Yeah, I think I think Snap elections, I think we can safely say, have shown themselves to to be <laughs> Not much fun in the first (laughs) place and and to have a sort of a long tail of problems afterwards.
0: I think you and we, Kat, are in a small subset of people who ever think elections are fun. (laughs) (laughs) So let's turn our attention to what arguably should really be the focus of the prime minister, and that's the NHS. It was only a few weeks ago that the Prime Minister began the year with a big speech setting out his policy pledges, one of which was focused on getting the NHS out of what some are calling its worst crisis ever. But do his pledges stack up? And will the policies he's announced to do with the NHS do what they are meant to do? We're joined now for his podcast debut by IFG researcher Stuart Hodinay, who is the author of a new IFG report out this week, which runs the rule over Sunak's claims. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Hannah. So first up, the NHS is, I think most people would agree, in a crisis, yeah. which the government says is due to COVID. Does that claim stack up?
3: It's an interesting claim, I would say. So I would start by saying that, first of all, yes, definitely COVID has had an enormous impact on the service, enormous negative impact as well. But it also hit the NHS at a point when it had experienced uh, almost a decade of below-trend spending increases that have substantially reduced the service's resilience to these kind of shocks.
0: And in terms of some of the pledges that Sunak made, and I think uh, you know he had his overarching five pledges, but then in answers to questions, he talked about some of the other things that the, the government uh, was planning to do to reduce pressure on the NHS. Is the government now giving more money to the NHS?
3: So the government did announce an increase in funding uh, in the autumn statement in November last year. That was a further £3.3 billion in each of the next two years to take us to the end of the spending review period, which is about a 2% increase compared to what was announced in uh, the 2021 spending review. Um, I think also sort of outside the NHS, but connected, the government also announced large funding increases for adult social care, which should indirectly help improve performance in the NHS. But I think it's also important to contextualise that money that the government gave to the NHS. So the last decade has seen substantially lower annual spending increases than pre 2010 levels, and far below what was what what the New Labour government uh, gave to the NHS every year between 1997 and 2010. So I think it, so. Just as a sort of a, an example, there was about 1.7% annual increases between. 2010 and 2019, compared to, I think, over 6% by New Labour in, de- in the decade or so before. But I think also just to compare it to other countries, the Health Foundation has done some work that shows that the UK spends about one-fifth less per person between 2010 and 2019 than comparable EU-14 countries. And so in cash terms, that would have meant that we would have had to spend about an extra £33 billion per year more in that time to sort of close the gap between those other countries. These are such
0: big numbers, aren't they? Yeah. The, the other thing Sunak uh, talked about was uh, the government's commitment to recruiting more staff. What's, mm-hmm. the, what's the what? Do the figures tell us there?
3: So we we have we, there, there are now more staff working in the NHS since 2019. There's about 13% more doctors and 12% more nurses, which is a substantial increase in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Part of that is because of um, steps the government laid out in the NHS Long Term Plan, which launched in 2019. Um, so yes, recruitment has been very good. I think the problem with the service has actually been one of retention. We're losing people at a rate that means that we're recruiting sort of faster and faster to try and keep up with uh, with the people leaving the service. Um, there are a number of reasons for that. I think so. in sort of surveys of why people are leaving, work-life balance is given as the one of the largest reasons. And that is, well, from more surveys and from data about ab- staff absences, that is because of um, high stress and high workloads during the pandemic. Some of that has started to come down again. Mental health absences are falling a little bit, but are still not back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, I think there are obviously other issues as well. Pay is certainly an issue, and I think probably more in terms of relative pay to other comparable sectors. So you hear a lot that NHS staff, particularly um, healthcare assistants, porters, that type of thing, who work in hospitals, are leaving the service to go and work in retail or hospitality where they can earn equal or higher pay for far less stressful work in many cases. The the staffing issue is definitely um, complex, I would say, but retention is where the the key problem is.
0: And what about the number of hospital beds that we've got?
3: Yeah, so there's been a decline over the course of the last decade, um, from the start of the uh, of the coalition government to 2019, is that deliberate strategy or it's yeah it's a mixture. There's and, and also I should actually sorry clarify as well that's that is part of a longer term trend that saw beds falling over a longer period of time from about the 1980s onwards. And it's a mixture of deliberate a deliberate strategy to treat more people outside hospital settings, so in the community um, uh, and elsewhere, but also it is due to improvements in treatment that mean we, we can now treat people better and allow them to stay in hospital less time. So there is a lower need for beds. But I think that there's a strong argument that the cuts went too far in the 2010s. And at about the midpoint of the decade, we were seeing very, very high bed occupancy levels in a, in a large number of trusts across the country, which I think is sort of a precursor of where we are now, which is incredibly high occupancy across the entire service.
0: Kat, can I come to you? What did you make of, of Sunak's pledges on the NHS? One of my neighbours and good
2: friend, um, she's an a nurse. And so I always kind of filter what I hear, you know, from politicians in the Commons or, or speeches through how I would imagine her response. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the sort of idea that you can divorce, um, I suppose, uh, salaries from hiring people because that is kind of what it is right that, that there are that there is still this this idea that there aren't enough people actually there doing what needs to be done and so that's kind of what contributes to this sense of burnout and this con- and you know the waiting lists and all the rest of it um, but of course it's it does all come down to money because if they were better paid then it would be a more attractive uh, place to work. And people wouldn't, as Stuart was just saying, leave to, to go to retail and other uh, places. And I think there is still this um, sort of concern that it's being hollowed out and has been over many years. You know, austerity obviously took it from, uh, took the NHS from from having one of the best outcomes in in sort of the Western world to, to sort of having, I think, one of the lowest ones, correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart, but you know, um, you know, this is the reason for the twenty nineteen election. This is ostensibly the reason for Brexit, is to put more money in the NHS. It has such a sort of strong place in our collective psyche. I don't I don't see that there is any appetite for for the sort of reform to be, you know, tear it up and start it again. But the change in demographics and and the sort of systems that we have in place, it does seem as though there needs to be some fairly fundamental restructuring of, of how things are dealt with.
0: Stuart, Kat mentions there the, the Brexit uh, claim about you know money would come back to the NHS. Is this just a case of money?
3: I think it's it's a complex one on, on the money front. First of all, I think there's no right level of funding and there'll always be a trade-off between the spending you put into the service and the performance you get out. Having said that, it's certainly true that there are very specific areas that have been underinvested in over the last 10 years and which would very much benefit from increased investment now. So for example capital spending has been particularly low in the NHS and that's not just a coalition and afterwards problem that was one that existed under new, under new labour.
0: So that's equipment estates?
3: Yes exactly so it's, it's spending to well to build hospitals so if you want to come back to the new hospitals building programme the fourth new hospitals but it's also as you say to maintain the existing estate it's diagnostic equipment it's IT infrastructure um, and That underinvestment means that we're now seeing a situation where the estate isn't up to scratch. We have some of the lowest numbers of diagnostic machines compared to other comparable countries. And all that makes it harder for the staff who are already in the service to actually do the work they need to do. So that's a drag on NHS productivity. We've talked about it before, but improving workforce retention is, I think, one of the key things the government should be focusing on potentially. And whether that's through a better pay package, through improving the culture in the service, or through any number of different interventions, I think that's very important. Um, management is often discussed in very negative terms uh, by the press, but actually, there is very good evidence that the NHS is one of the most undermanaged healthcare systems in the world, and certainly undermanaged compared to uh, large private companies or other organisations. So, I think there is definitely a, a, an opportunity to invest in better management for the service. Um, and finally we're very very focused on acute secondary care so hospitals you know how many people are going to beds, how many doctors and nurses do we have in hospitals but the NHS is a lot wider than that primary care is in a real crisis right now, so general practice is really struggling to deal with the level of demand it's seeing, and there's a very good argument for investing more there to ensure that people don't ever need to get to hospital in the first place so I think there's there's smart ways to spend additional money and I think just pouring more money into the existing system, I think, could be still be problematic.
0: It's worth saying that the IFG is going to be doing some more research on this whole question of of NHS productivity. Kat, what do you make of the government's hard line approach on strikes by NHS workers? And I mean, this is going to be an election issue, isn't it? There? There's no two ways about it.
2: Yes, we've just been talking about that internally actually here. Um we've just been doing a sort of a bit of a an internal debate about about the strikes and and I, I mean it feels like to me there is a sort of qualitative difference between nurses and doctors and uh some of the other sectors that are striking and 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 there is quite a, a sort of um sorry to use the word striking again, but there was quite a striking chart um, that I think it was from the FT uh, showed doctors pay going down heavily, nurses pay going down perhaps not as much, but obviously from a lower base. um, And meanwhile, sort of private sector pay goes up and train drivers uh, pay goes up most of all. Um, And so I think that that would be Reflected, I, my expectation would be that the public sentiment towards uh, doctors and nurses striking and ambulance drivers striking, although obviously that is at the sharp end of, you know, um, if people aren't working, then serious stuff is going to happen. I, I would imagine that sentiment will stick with them for a long time because because people can see that they're not enriching themselves not to say that train train drivers are but you, you know that there is there is a clear sort of um understanding i think in in, in general terms about what austerity has been like for, for people working in the nhs and this residual feeling of well we were clapping for them a couple of years ago and now we're saying no they can't have a, a pay rise um, and just to sort of go back to what stuart was talking about in terms of this sort of middle, middle management stuff because i did a bit of a, a look into that myself when steve Barclay was talking about the pay deal um being that the nhs had to propose efficiencies in order for for the pay pay deal to go through um you know kind of where would that those efficiencies come from and because middle management is is you know the kind of perceived wisdom is that that's where there is bloat in the nhs but actually um there's only three percent of the total workforce in the nhs are middle management which compared to uh, the uk economy as a whole uh managers make up 9.5 percent of the workforce so you can actually see that it's it's not that the NHS is bloated. In fact, it's the opposite. There aren't there aren't the people there. So quite where they expect to get these efficiencies, quote unquote, from. When you know you've got sort of ambulances and uh, A wait times at record highs, no middle management. It, it, it feels like you know actually this is kind of one of those places where the purse strings do have to be loosened a bit and and the idea that there is this sort of parallel with the sort of 70s winter of discontent you know it's not fair to say that the the unions have the equivalent stranglehold that they did in those days and and as a result i think that's probably again another reason why um public sentiment is is not quite as as anti it so it it seems like a sort of battle that they're not going to win either in the public uh, sort of perception or, you know, with with those who are striking.
0: And Stuart, your paper also made the point that the pledge that Sunak made about the NHS was sufficiently vague that he was probably quite likely He's to be really able crazy. to claim that <laughs> he had fulfilled it one way or the other.
3: Yes, one of his key claims was, I think, that he said that there's no ambiguity, no tricks. Was the the, the phrase he used? I, I I don't think that's quite true from what he was saying the key pledge that he made was to bring waiting lists down. So I think for a start, for me, that raises a lot more questions than it answers. For a start, which waiting lists is he talking mm. about? Is it elective waiting lists? Is it diagnostic waiting lists? Is it waiting, waiting for cancer treatment? But then there are sort of sub-waiting lists in all of those, which I'm, I won't get into. But yeah, so there's, there's a lot of scope for interpretation about what waiting list he means. Secondly, and this might sound like a nitpicky point, but I think it's important, he also used waiting lists and waiting times interchangeably. And they're very much not the same thing. You can have waiting times come down while waiting lists increase and vice versa. So again, that just gives him more scope to be able to claim success on this particular ambition. Um, and I think, it, and it again, it opened up an even wider range of performance indicators. Does it mean A&E wait times? Does it mean ambulance response times? I think it, it end up in the point where Sunak could potentially claim that any improvement in almost any indicator in the NHS between now and the election would fulfill that pledge. And there will be an improvement at some point.
2: He also didn't put an amount on it, did he? It was just
0: anything, any slight reduction. Exactly. Any drop in anything over any time
3: period. Yeah. And I mean, ironically, so the, the elective waiting list, which is the one that, is, that gets the headlines and probably maybe is one he's referring to here. Five days after he gave his speech, we had the data release for November, which showed the first drop in the elective waiting list since um, the sort of the, the worst days of the pandemic. So, I mean, if he wanted to, he could maybe turn around and claim success based off that. So, so plenty of ambiguity is plenty what you're of
2: saying. You. Is, is <laughs> I think that's really interesting because, you know, obviously a lot of people have already commented on the fact that one of his targets on inflation, um, to halve inflation, is something that is already being forecast by the Bank of England or OBR or whoever it is. So, you know, yet again, a sort of another sort of sign of things happening in the wider world that he's then claiming credit for.
0: Yeah, indeed. We talked about that last week on the podcast. Thank you so much, Stuart, for being with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's end with a little bit of self-promotion because I am delighted to announce that we have launched the IFG Academy. In fact, we launched it twice this week, once at the IFG and once in Parliament. Tim, you've been involved in lots of hard work uh, by the team here at the Institute uh, to get the Academy to this stage. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what this is about is kind of bringing together in one place, one easy easy to find place. All of the work we do helping those inside government, so ministers, special advisors, civil servants, think about how it could work better. And those outside government understand it more. So that's people like academics and charities who are interested in understanding, well, okay, what do ministers actually do? What what do MPs do? And how can I kind of get my ideas into the Westminster conversation? So it's aimed at those two kind of different groups of people, but it's all about thinking through how things work, what people are responsible for, how they work together, and improving that and making that understanding better and stronger.
0: And practically, what does this mean we're going to do?
1: So, a whole host of different things. We have got um, workshops for uh, academics and people who want to know about government. We run mini induction sessions for for new ministers, uh, helping them understand, okay, you've been appointed to ministerial office, what what should you be thinking about in terms of getting your civil servants to make sure they're giving you the right kind of information what can you ask them to do what should you be what's your still still your responsibility we've got a whole host of written material so if people want to read stuff if there's a lot of stuff on our website and we've got ambitions for lots more so we're going to be doing podcasts we're going to be doing lots more events around this kind of stuff we're going to be making sure basically that what we're trying to do is kind of demystify government and help people outside it understand it better and those inside it make it work for them
0: and there's work for lots of other groups as well um we've been thinking about the role of spads helping them uh get, be as good as they can uh because the rfg firmly thinks that spads are a good thing uh when they know what they're doing um and Absolutely. they can be a really vital part of of good government and uh work which we've already been doing uh but have brought now under the IFG academy for for select committees uh and and other people Tim is it not the case that though that the government already does this stuff
1: well you would you might think so but actually our conversations with uh, ministers and former ministers, a lot of what they say is about in their first days and weeks, they're getting up to speed with their new policy area. They might be, you know, they're appointed to the Department of Health and they're learning all about waiting times or whatever it might be. But nobody is telling them how to actually be a minister. What are their roles and responsibilities? What are their powers? How do they ask for information? How do they interact with people? What What does the day to day actually look like when it's done well? And that is just kind of expected. You kind of pick that up and learn by osmosis. And actually, what we think is, well, it's a job like any other. You can learn the ways of doing things. You can learn the ropes. You know, if you're if you go into a um, uh, a big company as a senior manager, you would be told how their processes work. Why should it be any different in government?
0: And interestingly, uh, when we've done this work in the past, it's often the uh, the new ministers who've got. The most experience in the outside world of having worked in big professional organisations, who who are the most ready to come to us and say, "Yeah, I expect this sort of training." Exactly,
1: they're used to investing in themselves. Yeah.
0: Kat, are you surprised uh, that that the government doesn't do more of this? That that the IFG would need to step in. Um, I
2: wish I could say I was, <laughs> uh, but no, I'm not. And I think there should be one for MPs specifically as well, because you know I think we've kind of seen with a lot of the sort of scandals around various kinds of behavior that that you know it's it's an odd world in which you know the MP employs the staff themselves and therefore you know if there's ever a problem the staff kind of have to complain to the MP themselves and I know that there are new systems in place and we've spoken before about this Hannah about the need for a sort of central hr function um you know that's just kind of one of one of the sort of few issues that I think, would, you know, needs to be addressed and could be addressed perhaps with some more sort of guidance for, for people who are starting. Um, and in terms of sort of ministerial uh, uh, behaviour, you know, as you're talking about the sort of, you know, ministerial codes, I think it definitely does appear that people need to be um, trained and uh, reminded of some of their responsibilities on that front.
0: Yeah, it's a remarkably common response on some of these standards things that people... Thought they were within the rules, but it turned out they were quite some way I mean, outside I think, them.
2: I think one of the problems is that you know we have a system that the rules are created um, in retrospect to deal with. Mm. You know, people sort of do things, and then and then suddenly there's an outcry, but they're not breaking the rules because. Those rules never existed. So, with the you know APPG stuff that we we you know we've we've been doing here at Tortoise, you know there has been an absolute explosion of APPGs. The rules are not particularly clear, um, and so you know on on some instances are people acting inside the rules? Maybe, maybe they're breaking them because the rules were never anticipated. Um, you know, so I think I think this is a sort of one part of of sort of various levels of of parliamentary life that um, it would be better to have something in black and white for everyone to
0: see I think that's absolutely right but I mean tim from from our point of view this the what the RFG academy is going to be doing it's not just about standards is it? no. it's about much wider um processes and practices. Absolutely,
1: it's about the day-to-day and, and, you know, thinking about what ministers need to know to be a good minister. So, from the very basic things, like, for example, you can tell your civil servants you don't want to go to that meeting. A lot of ministers tell us they just kind of get shepherded around and have to go to one minister told us they inherited their predecessor's diary and ended up at a hair appointment that they booked (laughs) for somebody else, you know, because they just had to follow what was in the diary. But actually, no, you can take control of that. You can can shape your day. You you are the decision maker. Up to things like if you don't have a um, an in-depth understanding of the health service you know we could provide our analysis or ministers who don't have uh you know perhaps an economic background what what kind of basic skills do they need to have so that they're able to ask the right questions and be a kind of an intelligent consumer of what it is that the civil service is giving them so it's a whole range of things across all different aspects of the the ministerial role and other people like you said Hannah Spads and civil servants and so on
0: and it's as, as as you say also tim very much driven by what ministers are telling us that yeah. they need yeah so where can people find out more tim and how do they get in touch with us so
1: it's all on our website so institute forward slash ifg academy uh, which has emails addresses on there uh, i mean email hannah email me find us on twitter we have a new ifg academy twitter account as well which is going to be putting out lots of information about the kind of thing we do so have a look through that see if that's of interest uh, but basically yeah you know, we, we would love to hear from people who are interested in government, who are inside government, uh, and and talk about how we can help.
0: Brilliant. Well, that's it for today. Many thanks to Tim Durrant, Stuart Hodno, and especially to Kat Nealon. And thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do leave us a review or consider subscribing. We're equally as happy to be given advice about how to do things better. <laughs> And as in 2022, I am not going to end the podcast by predicting what might happen next. Have a good weekend, everyone.